turn with me again this morning to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9, we'll read uh, verses 14 through 29 in just a moment. It's about 42 degrees this morning. It's getting colder in the mornings. And um, one of the exciting things about getting out winter jackets each fall, at least for me, is finding potential finding treasure in the pockets. Um, I got out my my puffy jacket a couple weeks ago, and I felt some wadded, something papery wadded in there, and I was excited it might be a couple of tens or wadded ones or something. And uh, it was an old tissue and a mask. Um, but I have I have found decent treasure in my in my jackets before. Um, it's exciting to find something valuable that you didn't know that you had. Um, I want you to think about that relative to prayer this morning. Uh, not that any of us doesn't know that we have it, have the, the gift of prayer. Um, but the fact that, uh, though it's not like a $20 bill, it's, it's of infinite value by God's grace. Uh, it often functions in our life too much like something that's, that's stuffed in our pocket. Um, perhaps we pull it out at, at worship time on Sunday morning, or maybe half-heartedly at, at dinner time, or uh, maybe eagerly in a, in a time of crisis or a time of need. But... Um, uh, many of us will fail to draw on the infinitely valuable uh, bank account of grace, if you will, um, that is prayer in, in any situation, every situation, uh, every day. Um, the the pre- Pew Research Center, which is, is helpful in giving some survey and polling of uh, trends in the U.S., um, it tells us 45% of those who identify as Christians uh, do not rely on prayer a lot when facing major decisions. Um, 37% of those who identify as Christians uh, report that praying regularly is not a part of their, uh, not a large part of their Christian identity. Um, Barna research tells us 16% of pastors are satisfied with their prayer life. Maybe that reflects some something of. Um, a healthy humility, but another survey suggests that 80% of pastors spend less than 10 minutes a day uh, in prayer. Um, but what we have in this passage, though, is a, a lament, a debate over lack of faith and spiritual power. And, and then the surprise conclusion from Jesus at the end, um, uh, in the final verse here, that, that this simply comes down to a lack of prayer which is tied to a lack of faith uh, closely. Um, uh, failure to recognize the value and the power and the gift of prayer and use that as, as an expression of faith. So uh, let's seek to understand together this morning this part of Jesus' life and ministry from his word and see how it leads us to understand our need and, and the gift of prayer. So let's uh, follow, follow along as I read here. Um, beginning in verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what were you discussing with them? 
And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into, a terrible, into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I want you first just to recall last week what we looked at, the, the immediately previous scene was what we traditionally call the transfiguration. Right, where Jesus' glory was revealed in indescribable brightness, and they heard the voice of the God the Father speaking to them uh, on the mountain there, and, and saw saints from the past, Moses and Elijah, who had suffered and died, but now were appearing in, in glory, um, shown to be alive, having life with God. And uh, Peter didn't know what to say, but he thought, this is so wonderful, we should build some tents, and let's hang out here for a while, this is great. Uh, we need to see the immediate contrast between that scene, that scene of glory, and what follows here. They come down the mountain and immediately find the other nine disciples in an argument, fighting with the scribes. Jesus lamenting over a lack of faith in him as the Son of God, and this, you know, the, the kingdom of Satan is exerting itself um, in, in horrible suffering uh, in this boy and his family's life. So we go from the joy and the hope and, and the glory of the mountaintop experience to darkness and pain uh, and, and conflict. Now that's a, a pattern probably you can relate to in your life. Um, we move startlingly rapidly from joyful, happy moments with your kids, maybe, to rebellion or sickness or, or conflict. Um, Go from a taste of heaven that is our, our time together at worship on, on the Lord's Day and hearing God's promises and comfort and the encouragement of Christian fellowship to the painful, discouraging realities of, of Monday morning or maybe Sunday afternoon. Uh, it's a reality in our world until Jesus returns. And it's a, a prominent theme of the passage here in, in reminding us, teaching us throughout, uh, throughout our lives of our dependence on Jesus, to come to Jesus. 
Uh, we're not told explicitly what, what the disciples were arguing about with the scribes here, uh, but it seems after Jesus asks what it was, this, that the father immediately comes forth, that it was uh, over this, this boy and the fact that the disciples could not help him. Uh, they couldn't drive the demon out of him. Uh, and they're debating, it would seem, why that was. And we can imagine the disciples flailing a bit to uh, defend, um, trying to explain why this demon didn't respond. We can imagine the scribes um, gloating a bit, pointing to this as proof that, that Jesus was not the one that they were to be following, um, that, that they were instead. The case that they were debating really was horrific. Uh, verse 17 tells us that uh, the evil spirit made the boy unable to speak. Uh, verse 18 describes uh, really symptoms of seizure, symptoms of grand mal seizure. And in fact, in um, Matthew's account, it, it, the boy is referred to as having epilepsy. Um, uh, some have suggested here and, and elsewhere where demons are mentioned in, in the Gospels that this just reflects ancient superstition, that um, the ancients thought that diseases were caused by demons and those that superstitious overlap here, but that's not a fair reading of the Gospels. Um, the Gospel writers clearly distinguish between uh, disease at times and demonic activity at other times. Uh, Jesus clearly speaks to uh, personal demons on a few occasions and most of the time simply heals a disease. Uh, that, is, that is something other. Uh, but we also read, described in verse 22, the Father says it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And so it's a horrible case of, of suffering and uh, example of evil. And, and in part, it's an illustration for us of just how evil evil is. In one sense, there's an extreme example here of the activity of the outworking of evil uh, in this boy's life, in this family's life, uh, even if it's not parallel to our general experience. Here's a, an extreme example of the outworking of it. Um, we need the reminder that all sin, all evil is ultimately destructive and, and dangerous. We need that reminder because sin and evil doesn't always look evil to us. It doesn't always look uh, ugly or destructive to us, right? A, a man who's lusting after a woman doesn't see something that's demeaning of his conscience and destructive of his marriage. He sees something beautiful, attractive. Right? Someone who's tempted to anger and rage because someone else has wronged them doesn't see something in that that's, that's uh, uh, destructive or, or dangerous in his attitude, but sees immediately something that's, that's good, that's satisfying, that's justified, that feels good. Uh, James, in his letter, in the letter of James, uh, describes sin as sort of a deadly monster that eats you, but starts out as a, a cute little baby, uh, in a sense. He, he writes, James 1, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, right? something that looks good, that's attractive. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. It's like a cute little baby. But sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It grows up to eat you. It's, that's its ultimate goal, every sin, all evil. Um, 
Its goal is your spiritual death, the destruction of your relationships, your reputation, your conscience, your love for God, and, and righteousness. And, and this is the kind of enemy we face, um, exhibited here, brought before Jesus. The, the boy and his father here are a picture of our desperate hopelessness uh, in our sin. Uh, in the face of that evil, our, our desperate, constant need for the power of Jesus. And in one, in one sense, even though we don't want to say there's anything good at all about what's, what's happening to this boy and to his family, uh, in one sense it's a grace of God that he gives all of us tastes at times of how great our need is, um, how desperate, how hopeless we are um, in the need of his grace. Well, consider, uh, secondly, on your outline there, Jesus' response and his, his interaction with the Father here. He hears, Jesus hears what the debate is about and the, the failure of the disciples. And in verse 19, he, he laments, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Why does Jesus say that? Who is he, and who is he talking about? It, it doesn't seem like he's directing that to anyone in particular here. Uh, he, said, he speaks of this generation. That's a, a broad term. Every, everyone around him in general is exhibiting a lack of faith in various ways. Um, and this isn't simply an annoyance or exasperation on Jesus' part. How long do I have to put up with you all? Um, we can demonstrate Jesus' care and his compassion, his patience with people with, with a lack of faith uh, many places in the Gospels. But I think we can at least say Jesus was longing for the day after his resurrection and, and uh, his death and resurrection and ascension when his church would fully know who he is and fully put their faith in him. Um, he longs for that day. I think maybe key to understanding Jesus' lament here is the very last thing he says there in verse 19. Uh, How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. I bring him to me. So often Jesus is either lamenting or the stories we're reading in the Gospels are, are illustrating Jesus' desire for his disciples to bring, uh, bring their problems to him. Whether, whether, whether it's lack of bread or a storm on the boat, come humbly to him. The answer to unbelief is come to me. And so they bring the boy to him in verse 20. And the father concludes in verse 22, So if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus again responds, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. In other words, Jesus is saying that the problem is not my ability. The problem is, is your belief, your faith. Um, are you coming to me in faith? There's, there's no question of Jesus' ability to do the impossible, Jesus' ability to meet needs. Jesus does the impossible for those who place their faith in him. Verse 24 says, Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. I think this this scene in the response of the Father illustrates, demonstrates a few things about the kind of faith that Jesus is seeking, what what true faith is like. Uh, First, simply, is that it comes to Jesus. The Father did come to Jesus. There's a confidence in Jesus and not in self. The Father says, I do believe. Jesus, you you are able. You are my, my help. 
Uh, faith is casting ourselves on Jesus in the face of our desperate need and, and the destructive power of sin and, and of evil and its consequences. But secondly, we, we see reflected in the Father's answer that true faith is humbly honest. He, he essentially says, my belief is not perfect. It's not pure. It's not free of doubt. And, and the true faith in, in that example trusts Jesus not only enough to bring him your trouble, bring your needs to him, but also trusts him enough to be honest about, about your doubt, your weakness. Trust him to help you in that as well. I want to continue this, this thought as we look at the third point in your outline, Jesus' healing of the boy. Look at what happened when the boy that was first brought to Jesus. Verse 20. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. Falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. It didn't go well at first when they brought him to Jesus. And then when Jesus commanded the demon in verse 26, uh, crying out, throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. Now he's lying there lifeless after his encounter with Jesus. One, one commentator observes the initial result of the effective presence of Jesus is not peace, but conflict here. Not resurrection, but suffering. And that's, that's not an unusual pattern. In fact, it's a pattern Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. Some of you have read uh, Rosario Butterfield's um, memoir or testimony for conversion. Um, her first book, if you haven't, you, uh, you, you should. It's really good. But she describes her conversion, um, her conversion to Christianity after having been very opposed to it, uh, not as a sort of walking into the light and coming into comfort and joy and all is wonderful, but as a train wreck. It was a, it was a train wreck of her life, right? Turning it upside down. Um, despite ultimately finding joy and peace. And confrontation by Jesus, transformation by Jesus is a struggle and generally happens through some struggle. Right? We need to embrace that, that reality, acknowledge that reality. It helps us to see in... in this, this account here helps us see in a condensed timeline in a way. Jesus' confrontation through healing of this boy helps us to see in a condensed timeline how the power and grace of Jesus often works towards those who believe. Now, it's crucial for us to see, I think, because we all know and experience that for most believers throughout history, for, for all of us, answers to prayers don't come within a, you know, a minute or two of, of, of the request, like it, like it does here for this boy. How do we square this with our experience of, of Jesus often saying no to our requests and giving us something else in life? Again, we have to wonder, what is, what is Jesus teaching in this miracle? He's, he's demonstrating that we can and must come to Him. We can and must put our faith in Him. And that often, struggle and suffering come first. But that He is the one who ultimately gives healing in life. 
Jesus has begun repeatedly to predict his own suffering and death. Right? We're going to see that continue in the next chapter as well. He's begun to tell the disciples that they must die to self, right? take up their cross, lose their life, be prepared to suffer and die for the kingdom of God. And so by his teaching, by the pattern of Jesus' own life, and even by the pattern of this miracle in which... At first, the boy experiences more suffering, even appears to be lifeless. He's driving home the idea that glory comes after, it comes through suffering and death. But that he is the source of that life, ultimately. Look, even more particularly how Mark makes this clear in this account here. Again, the result of this confrontation with Jesus initially uh, is not healing, but more gruesome suffering and, and apparent death. Everyone standing around says, I think he's dead. But then there's an unmistakable foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and resurrection, I think, here. Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. You notice how that's kind of redundant in what it says. Um, he raised him up and he got up. Um, it's obscured here in, a bit in the American Standard, um, uh, unusually so. Uh, but the last word there that, that's translated there in the Greek is the, is the same word used for Jesus' resurrection throughout the New Testament. Uh, so if you, have a, if you happen to have an ESV this morning, uh, maybe uh, another translation as well. It's translated, he arose. Uh, Mark adds another word to emphasize what's being illustrated here. Jesus lifted him up and he arose. It could be very legitimately translated, Jesus raised him up and he was resurrected. Uh, Jesus is the source of life through and after suffering and death. And, and it, it's certainly a, an illustration of leading us to think about Jesus' own death. There's a proclamation in verse 26, He is dead. The next verse, He arose. In light of that, I want to come back to the, father, the, the Father's faith and interaction with Jesus and the nature of true faith. True, real faith is sometimes construed, uh, contrary to this father coming to Jesus, as having no doubt about what you want. Right? I know I have faith that God is going to give me this job. Right? I know I have faith this, this church, this ministry will grow. It's often what people mean when they, when they encourage you to have faith. Right? Believe it's going to happen. Your prayer is going to be answered. Uh, that is not biblical true faith. Uh, faith is not a certainty that Jesus will give you what you ask for, but a trust in Jesus no matter what his will is, that he can, that he will powerfully do all he's promised, that he will powerfully work all things for good by his wisdom. The idea of faith is that presumptive a, a certainty about what you're asking for. I, I'm going to get the job, I'm going to get married, or, or whatever it is that you want is not faith. It's the opposite of true faith. Right? It's, it's, a redirecting, it's a redirecting and redefining a faith, which is a faith in Jesus himself, and who he is, and what, what his will is, 
and, and a trust in him. It's a redefining and redirecting our faith from that to the thing that I want. The object of my desire, as good as it may be. True faith is humble and often weak, but it's honest, as the Father shows us here. That, that alternative understanding of faith that focuses on the thing that we want does not come from Jesus' teaching or from the scriptures. It comes from modern American individualism and, and materialism. I, I shared in our men's study last week uh, uh, beginning of a, a sermon someone sent me years ago from, from John Piper. And uh, it, it, it seems appropriate in this application as well. Here's how it begins. He says, The Christian church in America suffers from about 350 years of dominance and prosperity. We have been dominant, we have been prosperous, and therefore we have come to feel at home in this world and have developed a deeply ingrained assumption that things should go well for us. And that this is our world and our age and that being a good Christian and being well thought of must go together. And that poverty and sickness and suffering and death is the worst thing that can happen in a land of Christian wealth and health and ease and upbeat, success-oriented vitality. A presumptive, entitled version of faith leaves people when, when... when Jesus' answer is no, or when suffering comes first, as it did here for this boy, thinking, well, maybe my faith wasn't strong enough, or maybe, maybe the problem was some deficiency in my method or my approach. And, and utterly contrary to that way of thinking is the fact here in this account that Jesus powerfully, graciously acts on behalf of someone with admittedly weak and, and doubting in perfect faith. Someone who came to Jesus say, I doubt you, Jesus. I don't fully believe in you. Help my unbelief. And he will graciously hear you. He will graciously give you all that he's promised. And do the impossible for you despite your imperfect faith. It's that encouragement to us. He will raise you to eternal life one day, free from sin. He will give you victory over temptation. He'll give you hope. He'll give you joy. He'll give you peace. These are impossible things aside from God's grace. Look at number four in your outline. Finally, this final interaction between Jesus and his disciples. They seem to have been eager to ask him, about what happened uh, verse 28 uh, when they get with Jesus alone they say why could we not drive it out the, the disciples had done this before back a couple of chapters we read about Jesus empowered the disciples to preach the gospel even to cast out demons and they saw through the Holy Spirit working through their preaching people turning and receiving the gospel they saw demons submitting to them and presumably, in this case, they did the same thing. They thought, and it didn't work. The demon didn't respond. So Jesus' response in verse 29 is, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. In other words, they, Jesus saying, You forgot to pray. That seems so simple. It can't really be that, that simple, but it, it's tied closely to the whole issue of belief and faith. As one person said, prayer is faith turned to God. 
A true faith is that which takes no confidence in itself. It, it depends on Jesus, and it's expressed, it's, it's worked out, that dependence is worked out in our lives chiefly through prayer. It's through prayer that we give concrete expression to the belief that we are insufficient, that we are desperately needy. Needy spiritually, we're needy for every aspect of our lives. And so Jesus is, I think, essentially telling the disciples that they simply were insufficiently mindful of their own insufficiency and their own inadequacy. And that practically worked out in, in their not praying to him, eagerly and desperately coming to him in prayer. It's likely that they had seen, and, and we know from their report to Jesus, that previously they had seen some successes, right? They had preached the gospel and they would seen the Holy Spirit work powerfully in people receiving this message of foolishness and believing it and receiving it. They would seen demons respond to them. And slowly they began to forget that it had nothing to do with them. So what, what parallels are there in your life to that? Maybe initially you ask for God's grace and leading and blessing in your parenting or your work, or, or we do in our, our ministry as a congregation. But if we meet with some successes, some blessing, uh, rather quickly though, maybe subtly, we begin to think that it rests on our genius or on our programs or on our budget or our strength. I know from my own life how easy that is. We, we can act like functional atheists when things are going well for us. Without prayer, we can expect no blessing from God. And, and the simplicity of prayer, all that it is, just coming to God with, with nothing but an expression of our, our faith or dependence on Him, teaches that the object of our faith is simply God. That, that all we have to do by His grace is come to Him in faith. There's a really interesting textual note at the very end of this passage that we read this morning. Uh, it's not noted in the NAS here, but if you have it, again, at ESV, there's a note there. Uh, maybe there's a note if you have an NMV study Bible or something as well, but... At the end of verse 29, the, the note is simply that some manuscripts add and fasting. Some manuscripts add and fasting. So uh, Jesus would be saying, uh, cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. Uh, and what it's alerting us to is that there are a couple of copies, a couple of ancient copies of the New Testament um, that, that include that, not most, and it seems clearly not to be original, and so that's why it's not in the, not in our text here. But it seems probable that someone who made a few copies of the Old Testament of the New Testament uh, long ago thought that Jesus' answer here was impossibly simple. You can't just say it's just prayer. It's got to be prayer and fasting. There's got to be something else to it. There's got to be something else we have to do to access the, the power of God. Sort of like other religions, this is how it works. There's some ritual you go through, hoops you jump through to invoke uh, supernatural power. 
uh, that the simplicity of prayer is, is against our nature. That we, write, we like to control. We like to manipulate answers to our problems. We like the idea of a God whose power can be invoked on demand. If we have the right method or the right process or the right kind of power, the right kind of faith, we want to treat God like a, a sort of a cosmic, quirky slot machine, right? If you, if you know how just to pull the lever and how to kick it and right when to shake it, you win the jackpot most of the time. This is why prosperity preachers can tell you, you know, send in $1,000 and God will give you $10,000 within two weeks, right? Or, or healing ministries can say, come to our events and follow our methods exactly and be healed. Or a monk can say, go through my, my, uh, go through my methods and you'll reach a higher state of spirituality. Right? There are these little tricks and manipulations to invoke the power of God. Uh, these are all uh, man-centered tricks and lies. Jesus is saying, not anything but prayer. And not anything but prayer. And here, in this context, the prayer of a doubting, weak-faced man who came to Jesus saying, I, I doubt you, help my unbelief. Uh, true faith is, is throwing yourself on Jesus, no matter what his will is, no matter how strong your faith is, trusting Him to maintain and strengthen your faith and hope and love through, through suffering, trusting Him to be with you forever, to, to raise you to life, to, to be with you forever. True faith is expressed through the blessing, the gift of communing with God in prayer. And so are you remembering to pray? When your kid is frustrating you or acting badly or disobeying and you need to confront him, do you, you pray? When you face conflict with a coworker or with your spouse, do you pray? When you face a situation that you know is a temptation to you, do you pray? When you talk to someone you know needs to hear about Jesus, you have a good opportunity to share your hope, do you pray? Not that prayer ensures that these all turn out exactly like, like we would design or, or like we would ask. But to those who ask, Jesus does promise many things. He promises wisdom. He promises faith. He promises strength of, of will and sanctification. And, and Jesus will at times surprise you with easing of pain or healing of relationships or, or glimpses of glory and redemption outwardly. Do you pray? Do you recognize that you're as desperately needy of the grace of God now as when you first received it? Or as, as, as you have ever been in your life? It doesn't change. Uh, we as a congregation need to be given to prayer. Uh, we, we cannot be faithful or experience the blessing of God in what we hope for uh, as a congregation without prayer. It's not to say that God won't um, use many practical things. He won't use wise decisions and hard work and programs and money and, and all kinds of tangible things, but... When we look back on, on our congregation five years or ten years or twenty years, many good questions we might ask. The most important questions 
will not be how many people did we add or lose or where do we accomplish in the community and so on. The most important question will be were we faithful uh, and were we dependent on Jesus Christ through prayer? Uh, did we pray without ceasing as, as Paul instructs? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again this morning for uh, your word and how it instructs us. We thank you for the example again of the compassion and the power of Jesus, the reminder here of the the simple, um, yet powerful and gracious gift of prayer. And we pray that you would help us to recognize it and uh, use it faithfully uh, to our blessing and to your glory uh, in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.